If you were here last Sunday, or if you listened to the sermon audio online, I drew your attention to Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, where we are told that the events of Daniel chapter 2 happened in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I then offered an explanation uh, for the apparent time reversal that happens between chapters 1 and 2, seeing as how the events of chapter 1 happened in the third year of his reign. And I misspoke. And so that's the point of my bringing this to your attention right now. I misspoke. The events of chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, we are told in plain English in chapter 1 verse 1 that it happened in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, Judah, not Nebuchadnezzar. However, there is still an apparent time reversal that I intended to draw your attention toward and I misspoke. The apparent time reversal is this. Back in chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, besieged Jerusalem and then he brought back to Babylon a host of Israelite captives and then he forced them to undergo a three-year Babylonian training program, right? We on the same page as far as the story? So as we come to chapter two, it's only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. What happened? What happened to the three years that he insisted that the Jewish exiles go through a, an indoctrination program? Well, this is the apparent time reversal that I had intended to explain last Sunday. And the explanation is actually the same as the one that I presented you with. At some point in time, during Daniel's three-year training in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar's father, the preceding king of Babylon, had died at some point in time in chapter 1. And so the official start time of Nebuchadnezzar's kingly reign was reset. And as we come into chapter 2, which we're going to finish, Lord willing, this morning, it's in the second official year of his independent reign, even after the three-year training regimen he had enforced all of the, the Jews to go through. It might seem a little silly for me to take time to clarify this. But pastors Ed and Seth and I, we want to do and it is our job to do everything we can to supply you with an accurate understanding of scripture. We want you, we want all of us to take God at his word and to know with confidence that whenever there is an apparent contradiction in scripture, such as this apparent time reversal between Daniels 1 and 2, there's always an explanation. And so, this actually serves as a really good segue into today's passage, which we're going to be considering, and that is Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 through 49. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn there. And if you're just joining us, before I read, the book of Daniel tells the story of four Israelite teenagers who, among roughly 5,000 others, are torn from their families and their homes, and they are deported to a far away country where they face an array of dangers and darkness as they serve a pagan king. Last week, in the first half of Daniel chapter 2, so verses 1 through 23, King Nebuchadnezzar had a frightening dream, which he thinks could be a glimpse into the future. 
And so last week we considered how he summoned his council of enchanters and magicians and astrologers. And then he demanded that they do what no human being or Babylonian God can do. Nebuchadnezzar demanded that his wise men, that they not only tell him what his dream means, he demanded that they tell him what his dream was. When none of the wise men could help him in last week's passage, Nebuchadnezzar sentenced them all, including Daniel and his three friends, to a brutal and painful death. In verses 17 through 19, we saw Daniel and his late teenage friends do what many mature professing believers today would neglect to do. They huddled together in Daniel's home and they cried out for the mercy of God. And God revealed to Daniel the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so now I'd invite you to follow along as we pick up the story. Daniel chapter 2 verses 24 through 49. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream in the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Great God of heaven, just as you made known to Daniel the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we ask that you would make known to us the implications of this passage. That we would then glorify you with godly understanding and conduct. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are obviously many things we could consider from this passage, but with the focal point of this passage being Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
That will be our primary consideration. And as we make our way through this passage and the interpretation of the dream, we will also consider the big picture implications that are posed to us. So I don't really have multiple points of an outline, really kind of have one general idea as we work our way to and through the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we will stop along the way to consider the implications that emerge from the passage. Okay, that's the best way I have of organizing the passage ahead of time. So let's just jump right in and, and Lord willing, you will be given clarity and I'll be given a clear articulate, articulation of what I'm trying to say here, okay? All right, so in verse 24, Daniel frantically notifies the captain of the king's guard who has been charged with executing the king's wise men. Daniel frantically notifies Arioch that he has obtained what no other wise man of Babylon was able to obtain, knowledge of what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was and what it holds for the future. But notice with me, in the second half of verse 24, before Daniel even secures a time to speak to the king, he first insists that Arioch halt the execution of all the king's helpless wise men. Now, no doubt, Daniel and his friends are in the forefront of Daniel's mind here. But we must not also forget that the majority of the wise men whom Daniel is trying to save here are the very men who had worked tirelessly for three years to erase his identity as an Israelite and to paganize him into a Babylonian. Daniel is showing concern for men who had no concern for him. Daniel is working for the good of men who had worked for his ill. It is confounding, and yet right here, it is what it looks like to be in the world and not of it. This is what it looks like to reflect the light of God in the midst of a darkened city. We're not even in the focal point of this passage and we're already being challenged with implications. So brothers and sisters, let me just ask, I'll ask you what I'm asking myself. How are you showing concern and care for those who have no concern for you? Be it a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor, you know the drill, running through all of our spheres of life in our minds. How are you showing concern and care for those in your spheres of life who have no concern for you? Are you praying for them? Are you asking God to present you with opportunities and with strength to serve them and to work for their good? This is the heavenly poise that we must put on as God's people in order that everyone in our spheres of life would taste and see the Lord is good. In verse 25, Arioch brings Daniel into the throne room and he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he's found a man who can interpret the dream. Now, 
In all actuality, Arioch hadn't lifted a finger to find anyone, right? You can almost picture Daniel like rolling his eyes as Arioch puffs himself up. It's, it actually is a good illustration of how quickly sinful men try to take credit for the things that God clearly orchestrates. And interestingly, Arioch's posture of self-congratulating before Nebuchadnezzar, it serves as a great contrast to Daniel's posture in verses 27 and 30. Look with me. In 27 and 30, Daniel makes absolutely clear to Nebuchadnezzar that his ability to interpret the mysterious dream has nothing to do with his own impressiveness. How awesome. He gives all credit where credit is due to the God of heaven who reigns above all earthly rulers and wise men and make-believe Babylonian gods. And oh, that you and I would be so quick to tell our employers our advisors, our teachers, our coaches, our teachers, our neighbors, that God is the source of all of our talents and abilities. Any success we taste, glory to God. And that we would do so without false humility, but in genuine honesty, glory to God from whom all blessings flow. In Verses 31 through 35, Daniel, who the king knows as Belteshazzar, that name is after the god Marduk, the Babylonian god Marduk, Daniel reiterates to the king in verses 31 through 35 what the king had seen in his dream. And so let's get, what the king saw was an enormous, glistening statue of a man. Think about like an Academy Award but just huge and comprised of four different metals, all right? The head of the statue, of course, was gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze and its lower legs were iron. But as you go further down toward the feet, the iron is intermixed with clay. The king also saw a mysterious stone that had been divinely cut from a mountain by no human hand. And as the stone came into Nebuchadnezzar's view in the dream, it struck and demolished the statue of the man until it vanished like fragments of hay in the wind. And finally, after the stone had overcome the statue, it became again a mountain that filled the whole earth. This is what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his unsettling dream, and he was right to suspect that it held significance for the future, because it did. And Daniel tells him the significance that it holds for the future in verses 36 through 45. Before we look at this interpretation, we need to know that many, most, most modern scholars, critical scholars who don't believe that there is a God and they don't believe that God would take the time to reveal mysteries to men, most 
Modern scholars do everything they can to squirm away from Daniel's interpretation of this dream. And the reason they do is because it foretells with baffling precision events that would end up taking place on the world stage of actual history. Daniel begins the interpretation, of course, by by handing Nebuchadnezzar the bottle of glue that holds all of the imminent reality of this dream together. He explains to Nebuchadnezzar what is true of every king and kingdom the world has ever seen, and it is this, every ounce of dominion that Nebuchadnezzar possesses in Babylon, it's been given to him by the God of heaven. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's empire and every empire after him is not ultimately owed to military power or limitless funds. It is owed to the God of heaven who establishes and removes kings according to his sovereign plan. Can you imagine telling President Biden That he sits in his Oval Office, not primarily or ultimately because of votes, but because for some mysterious reason that is higher than our pay grade, God God saw fit to put him there for the judgment of sinners and that the church would cry out to God for mercy. At the end of verse 38 and continuing through 43... Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that the statue's four different materials represent four different kingdoms that would rise up to rule and to shape the world as we know it. At the top of this, the, the statue was the head of fine gold. This represents Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire. If you're even the least bit familiar with gold, you'll know that gold is a radiant metal but it is not as durable as silver. And so according to the dream, you'll, you know, this means that an, another kingdom would rise against and conquer the radiant but soft Babylonian empire. The second kingdom is signified by the statue's silver chest and arms. And if you know your world history, and if you know the rest of the story of Daniel even, The Medo-Persian Empire, more durable than the Babylonian Empire, would rise against and conquer the young Babylonian Empire, and the Medo-Persians would hold the position of global superpower for 200 years until about 330 BC. At the end of those 200 years, the Greeks, the Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great, the bronze stomach and thighs of the statue. He would rise against and conquer Medo-Persia and would rule the world for 185 years. At the end of those 185 years, listen to this, the Bronze Age would give way to the Iron Age, which is not coincidental, and mighty Rome, strong as iron, would conquer the Greek Empire 
becoming the preeminent superpower of the world whose influence still saturates Western society today. But the Achilles heel of the Roman Empire is that it would become so widely spread across nations, divisions would ultimately weaken and stifle its infrastructure like iron mixed with clay. This is as good a time as any to say, take God at his word. <laughs> take God at his word. As he says it will unfold, it will unfold. What he says will come to pass. What he decrees become reality. What he promises will come to fruition. And the crowning jewel of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is no exception. Daniel finishes the interpretation, verses 44 and 45, by promising that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, who orchestrated the rise and fall of the corrupt kingdoms of men, in those days, the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor abandoned. The kingdom of God, signified by the stone, shall bring an end to all the corrupt kingdoms of men, and it shall stand like an immovable mountain forever. The stone, of course, is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings, he is not cut from the same material as, as earth's finite rulers. He is cut by God from the mountain of God to rule with the everlasting might of God unto the everlasting glory of God. This crowning jewel of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is one that should bring exuberant consolation to God's people and extreme fear to God's enemies. Because the dream is certain and its interpretation sure, as Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar. Look, just a really quick aside our gaze must not be set on human political power, no matter how iron-ish it appears. Because the kingdom of the stone has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus the Lamb, and the kingdom of stone will soon be consummated at the, the glorious return of Jesus, the lion. Let's consider a few impl implications at this point. First implication that came to mind as I prayed through this passage this week. Like Daniel, we must take God at his word. Daniel was certain that what God had revealed to him would come to pass. 
And we should be equally certain that what God has revealed to us in Scripture will come to pass. As we take God at his word, as we consider that glorious return of the stone that will soon consummate the kingdom of God that is already but not fully yet, consider your life with me. Consider your habits and your patterns of behavior. Are there areas of your life that look more like Babylon, that need to be repented of and put to death? Because the lion of Judah, the stone cut from the mountain, is soon to return, and his kingdom will never end. We must, church, get our affairs in order now. That time is imminent. It is soon to come. We don't know the hour and it could be at any moment. How do you look like Babylon? Consider your life, your parenting rhythms, your husbanding. Consider the way you operate in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. Do you look more like a 21st century Babylonian than one who has been resurrected in the glory and power of King Jesus who is to return soon. Implication number two. Like Daniel, we must be so convinced of the certainty of God's word that it compels us to speak up to those around us no matter the cost. Look, Daniel could have, and if I were in his shoes, I would, have, I would have been tempted to do this. Daniel could have softened or sidestepped the weighty truth of this interpretation before Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't. He respectfully and yet boldly and clearly told Nebuchadnezzar just like it is from God's word. He said it like it is. He said it like it is. Consider your friends. Friends who might be floundering and flirting with the perilous danger of nominal Christianity. Consider your friends. Consider your colleagues. Consider your supervisors, supervisors, your bosses, administrators. Consider the spheres of life in which you walk each week. How might you be softening or sidestepping something, a truth of God that needs to be respectfully, clearly, compassionately, courageously said? Implication number three, there are better ways of wording this, but I'll say it this way. Like Daniel, you and I, brothers and sisters, we must lead the pack. And here's what I mean by that. No doubt, 
during this part of the story, well, and throughout the whole story of Daniel, no doubt there are many Israelites in Babylon with Daniel and his friends, some 5,000 of them, and all of them are altogether con- content on becoming Babylonians. And right now, in this very story, there's a figure that you'll recognize from a different book of the Bible, Mordecai, who's blending in with the Babylonians just fine. He later on, of course, is in the book of Esther. And he stays in exile rather than returning to Jerusalem like he should have. But think about this. No doubt, no doubt Daniel's poise, even in chapters 1 and 2, already in the story, no doubt Daniel's poise and his bold interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream Don't you think it would have at least encouraged all the other Israelites who were in the wings, who were becoming Babylonians, who didn't know what to do? Don't you think it had to have encouraged and even emboldened some of them? When they saw repeatedly Daniel and his three friends stand upon the truth of God in Babylon and speak it clearly and courageously, It had to have emboldened some of the other Israelites that are not mentioned here. And so I'll ask you, who in your workplace, your classroom, your neighborhood, who in those places is frightened to stand on the word of God? Who right now in your spheres of life is intimidated right now? They're intimidated. The water's getting hot out there. Christianity is not popular. Well, narrow road Christianity is not popular. The real Christianity, the real subservient to Christ faith is not popular right now. So who around you, who in your spheres could be intimidated and waiting in the wings for a Daniel to rise up with great Holy Spirit given boldness and stand on God's truth. I remember this is the only uh, illustration I'll use this morning. It's just coming to me right now. My first job, I was working at a pizza shop and the boss wanted one of our delivery drivers to make up some reason why the pizza delivery would be late and not to offer a discount because that was the deal. And I'll never forget that pizza delivery driver. He was older than me. I was 15, he was in his early 30s, he was a believer, and he told his boss, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell our customer exactly why the pizza's late, and if you must, charge me for the pizza. But that would be untruthful. And I remember he gave glory to God, and I was like, you know, a 15-year-old just entering the workforce, kind of freaked out, kind of wanted to fit in. And it encouraged me so much to see another believer say, you know what? No, boss, I'm not going to do that. With all due respect, I'm going to tell it like it is because that's what God would have me do. That emboldened me so much, and I thank God for him. Who is waiting in the wings of your world, waiting to see a Daniel-like poise, a heavenly poise? I can almost promise you That narrow path Christianity will have a lot more adherence if we start getting a little bolder about it. Implication number four. 
like Daniel, we must leverage the positions God has placed us in, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, etc. Look, at the close of our chapter, right, what we see, God can and sometimes does puts those who are committed to honoring him in positions of influence, right? Daniel gets a, gets a raise and a, and a promotion, and so do all of his friends, and there is a very specific point in God's providence for all of this happening. God sometimes does that. He sometimes does it. But the point for us is, no matter the position you have, no matter your station in life, we all have a position The question is, will we but leverage it in such a way so as to give King Jesus glory and center stage? Will we use leverage to influence those around us to point people to Christ, to the truth of God? Even subversively, we've all been given a position. How are we stewarding it? Are we stewarding it like Daniel? The fact of the matter is we've all failed at this. We have all failed at this. And when you think about it, rewind with me. I know that I'm a little, I'm a little over time. I'm going a little long, long-winded. Just give me another 35 minutes and we'll close <laughs> this up. No, no, two minutes, okay. When you think about it, you think about all the ways that, well, I'll just speak for myself. I don't, I'm not a Daniel. I'm not a Daniel. I'm a Mordecai. More often than not. But when you think about it, you and I, when we're honest, we were once like the wise men who Daniel is interceding for in verse 24. You and I were once unconcerned for the glory of God. You and I were once doing everything in our power to diminish and disregard God's authority over our lives. And yet, like these wise men at the beginning of our passage, these wise men on death row, just like them, you and I are the undeserving recipients of someone else's concern. Jesus. Jesus came not just to halt the punishment we deserve. He came to take the punishment upon himself so that we would go free. And we mustn't underestimate the power of maintaining a heavenly poise among the pagan peoples of earth because we're coming up into Advent season. Five centuries after Daniel, check out the influence that he had with his heavenly poise. Five centuries after Daniel intercedes for these wise men Do you know who travels all the way to Bethlehem to find and to worship the king of kings born in a manger? Wise men from the east. Astrologers from the region of Babylon. What an influence. Lord, give us that heavenly poise. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you that you are the revealer of mysteries, and at that you are the revealer of what your word says, what it means, and how it must be observed in life. And we ask that you would have done that and are doing that among us, that you would be glorified 
by giving us godly understanding and conduct that, Lord, here in Worcester, Ohio, there would be a contingent, there would be a grassroots movement of the narrow path Christian men and women standing up with heavenly poise, the same as Daniel, and Lord, that you would do a work in our midst such that we wouldn't believe if he told us. Give us a heavenly poise, a confidence in you that your word, well, we must take you at your word for every dot will come to fruition. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.